I don't know if you've heard of a preacher called Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's one of the great preachers of the last century in England. He was Welsh, and he was the pastor of a church, uh, Westminster Chapel, in London. And uh, he also founded a seminary, which is the one I went to in London. Um, but he, he had a, I don't know if you've you read one of his sermons, perhaps. He starts a lot of them like this. I would like to draw your attention to one of the grandest subjects in the Bible, or one of the most important chapters that we're going to look at in the Bible, or one of the most essential doctrines in the Bible. And of course, when you hear him preach, you get the impression, wow, this is the most important thing you need to hear. Um, But you also get the impression that every verse in the Bible needs to be underlined and highlighted. This evening, we are, in fact, coming to one of the greatest events in the Bible, in history. Everything that was before it points towards it. And everything that comes after it flows from it. Even throughout all of history, we're going to be singing this song about the cross, the lamb who was slain. And in Mark's gospel, this is the, one of the main themes he wants to highlight for us the centrality of the cross. And we see it, even Jesus, at the heart of his mission, the reason why he came, said this in chapter 10. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah, he's going towards the cross. But there's another big theme in the Gospel of Mark. So the first one's the cross. The second one is glory, the glory of Christ. We see at important points in the gospel, particularly at the baptism, we see the voice, we hear the voice of the Father, and he says, this is my beloved Son. And we see at another point, when Jesus and a couple of the disciples, they climb up this mountain, and they see Jesus transformed before their eyes, and they hear another, the voice of the Father again, he says, this is my beloved Son. We see the glory of Jesus. And, and, and throughout the gospel, Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralytic. And he forgives his sins, something that God, only God alone can do. We see another thing. Jesus, when he's with the disciples out at sea, a storm starts. And with just his voice, he calms the storm. He has authority over nature. We see the same things with demons, the spiritual realm. Jesus commands that they come out. We see it with disease and death. Jesus has authority over all these things, and it shows his glory. But how do these two things go together? A cross and glory. Think about what it means, the crucifixion. It means at least two things. It was one of the most cruelest forms of execution known to man. It was designed to prolong pain for as long as possible so that they would eventually die through suffocation. And then secondly, it's the most disgraceful ways to die as well. You would be stripped before the crucifixion. You'd be pinned there, naked, publicly exposed to everyone as a sign for if if you're going to think about rebelling against Rome... If you think about rebelling against the emperor, this is what's going to happen to you. 
In other words, it's a symbol of death, disgrace, and defeat. So we have Jesus, the most glorious person, and then we have the cross, the most disgraceful execution. How can they go together? This is the message that we're going to look at this evening. The cross is the deepest revelation of Christ's glory. The cross is the deepest revelation of Christ's glory. Now, there are some people who say that these two can't go together. They must remain separate. It's a contradiction to put them together. And this is what brings us into our text and to the first point. Jesus is the Savior that nobody wants. Jesus is the Savior that nobody wants. Look at verse, we'll, look, we'll read verse 21 to 32 again. And a certain man from Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, it's just interesting to note here that Rufus, we find his name in Romans chapter 16. So it's most very likely that when Mark's writing his gospel, um, there, there were people there that they knew about. They knew Rufus, and they knew his father. They're part of the crucifixion. was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry a cross. They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So this would have been some sort of drink to alleviate, to reduce the pain. And Jesus chose not to take it. And then they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Each would get. And so you see, Mark doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the details of the crucifixion, the horrors of the crucifixion. He's just telling it as it is. Verse 24, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now this is the, these verses I want us to focus on. Jesus, the savior that nobody wants. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus is the savior that nobody wants. What do these insults have in common? It's that Jesus, if you are the Messiah, if you really are the one who you say you are, you wouldn't be on the cross. You would come down. Yeah, the glory of a Messiah and the disgrace of the cross, they don't go together. The defeat of the cross, the death of the cross, and the glory of Jesus, they don't go together. What are they looking for? Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you really are the king of the Jews, now's the time to prove it. Show us what? Show us power. Look, they said he saved other people, but he cannot save himself. 
Jesus had the power to stop a storm. He had the power to cast out demons. He had the power to raise the dead. Show us power. Overcome the cross. Come down, defeat the Romans. Show us how great you are. Show us strength and might. Even today, we think, what type of savior do we want? Because often our way is much different than God's way. Whenever there's a conflict, yeah, when we want something that will conflict with what someone else wants, or we have an opinion that will conflict with what someone else thinks, what do we do? We say, I have the right. It's my needs, it's my desires that come first. I'm the one that should be justified. And I'm going to use my power to prove that I'm right. I'm going to use my power to get what I want. Take them to court. I'm the innocent one. I'm the righteous one. I'm the one who deserves to win this. And this is what a type of Messiah that we want. We want a Messiah that looks like us, thinks like us, acts like us. We want a Messiah that even though he's innocent and righteous, he's going to show us power. But he doesn't do that. Why doesn't Jesus come down from the cross? Why doesn't Jesus save himself from the cross? Because he wants to save us. It's his love for us and his mercy for us that he stays on the cross. Jesus is the Savior that no one wants. So what does Mark want us to see here then? How are we to see this glory and the cross together? This brings us to our second point. Jesus is the Savior who bears God's wrath. Jesus is the Savior who bears God's wrath. Verse 33 to 37. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we're going to look at two things here. The darkness and the cry. First is the darkness. The darkness in the Bible is often a sign for God's judgment. We see it in Amos. Um, I have it somewhere. Amos, Amos chapter 5, verse 18 to 20. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. But I think there's another text that Mark wants us to think about. And it's the darkness that came over Egypt. If you remember, back in the Israel's history, they were enslaved in Egypt, and God came to bring judgment upon them and release them, redeem them. And you have these different plagues that come down, and one of the last plagues was darkness for three days. This is what God said to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. And total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. 
So what does God command the Israelites to do? Find a lamb, kill the lamb, take its blood, wipe it over their doorpost, and when God comes in to enter in the judgment, he'll pass that house by. The lamb dies, but they will live. And all the firstborn of Egypt, that's what the judgment was, God would come and he would destroy the firstborn of animals and people, except for those who are hidden under the lamb. And this is what this darkness represents here in this text. God is entering in the judgment. But the big question is, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb that we sacrifice to be covered to protect ourselves from God's judgment? He's there, he's on the cross, and he's bleeding. And it's his blood that covers us from God's judgment. He takes it. He's our substitute. He's our sacrifice so that we may live, so we may know God's love, so that we may know God's acceptance. When he, when Christ knew instead, wrath, anger, judgment. The second thing we see is the cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do we understand this? Has Jesus lost faith? Has he, uh, did he think God, his father, would come and rescue him and prove the Romans wrong, prove the religious leaders wrong? Did God fail his rescue mission? Is this kind of a, a cry that What's going on? We see that this cry is actually Jesus quoting Psalm 22. And so the verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. So it's interesting here. Jesus is quoting scripture. And the psalm begins with this, it's a psalm of David, and he's in despair. But it doesn't end there. It ends with thanksgiving and deliverance. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So it's interesting. This psalm, this psalm starts with despair, suffering, abandonment, but then it ends with thanksgiving and deliverance. And Jesus knew scripture. He, there's no doubt he knew all of this, the whole psalm from beginning to end. It's interesting as well, when you read through Psalm 22, it's pretty much describing the cross. Look what it, I'll read some verses. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. It's exactly what Mark wrote. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 16, dogs surround me. And the pack of villains encircle me. Listen to this. They pierce my hands and my feet. It's like this Psalm 22 was written for Jesus. 
Verse 17, all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. And then listen to this. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Jesus is, a, is living out what was written in Psalm 22. But what's important here, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, but he doesn't quote the end. He doesn't quote the victory. Yes, that will happen with the resurrection. Jesus knows he has come to die and that he will rise from the dead, but he doesn't quote the end of the psalm. He quotes the beginning. Why? Because that's what he's living through. That's what he's experienced. He is experiencing the despair of not knowing where God is. Think about it this way. One of the most important things to us is relationships. Yeah, when you love someone, you want to be close to them, you want to spend time with them. Whether it's your friends, whether it's your families, whether you've just fallen in love, relationships are the most important thing that we have. It makes you want to live life. Not having relationships makes life really tough. But if that's true, it equally means this, is that when we lose relationships, that's one of the most difficult things to live through. When you lose a friend, that's painful. When you lose a family member, whether it's your parents, whether it's a son or a daughter, that's terrible. Or if you lose someone that you've fallen in love with, well, that's devastating. Think about these things now, put them together, and times them, times them, multiply them by about 10 million. And that's what's happening to Christ on the cross. Because forever, throughout eternity, he has been the son. And he's always known the love of his father. And he's always been rejoicing in the love of his father. There's never been one moment that he has never known it. Even in his earthly ministry, when he comes down to us, we, like we said at the beginning, there's these key moments where he hears his father's voice and says, this is my beloved son. We see that at the baptism and then at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. And then what do we have on the cross? Silence. Darkness. We don't hear the voice of the father. We only hear the voice of Jesus. My God, my God. He doesn't even say, my father, my father. Why? Because he's probably lost the sense of it. He hasn't stopped being the son. He's always the son. But being under the weight of God's judgment, he has lost the sense of who he is as the son and who his father is. He's been completely... He has, to, he has a sense of separation from his father. And we'll never be able to know what that means. We'll never be able to even fathom what that means. But that is it. What's caused this separation? It's the horror of humanity's sins. All the anger, the wars, the pride, the slavery, the rape the cruelty, the people there mocking Jesus, the people there laughing at him, jealousy, 
think about everything that's wrong with this world and then place it on Christ. And yet he's the innocent one. He's the righteous one. He's never committed a sin in his life and he doesn't know what any of that is like. He doesn't know what it's like to do any of that. It's put on him and he's made responsible for it. He made it, even though it wasn't his own sin, he made it his own. When Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it goes something like this. He who knew no sin, oh, how did that go again? He who, he who knew no sin, God made to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Why is Jesus God forsaken? Why does he have this sense of separation from his Father so that you would never experience it in your life? Jesus was abandoned so that you would never so that you would never be abandoned. And then we have this story of Elijah. Verse 35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. So where does Elijah come from? There was a popular understanding that Elijah, so Elijah never experienced death. God took him from the earth straight to heaven to be with him. And so their attrition, a tradition, tradition became, began to form that Elijah would come back and save righteous people and save innocent people. And so perhaps people are thinking, look, Jesus just, Jesus just quoted Psalm 22. You know, they knew scripture as well. They probably knew how it ended. And they're thinking, if Jesus is truly righteous, if he is truly innocent, perhaps God is going to rescue him and he's going to send Elijah to do it. That could be it. It could be also uh, apparently in Aramaic. The word for God and the word for Elijah are very similar. So perhaps they misheard what Jesus was, was saying and they thought he was calling for Elijah. Whichever it is, there's one thing that we know. Elijah doesn't come. God doesn't send Elijah. Instead, we have verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. The most glorious person and the most disgraceful cross, the King of the Jews, the Messiah, whichever title, glorious title you want to give him, he dies. The Son of God dies. But it doesn't end there. Right away, two things happen because of this death. And that will lead us to our third and fourth point. The third point, Jesus is the Savior who brings us to God. Jesus is the Savior who brings us to God. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom 
So just to remind you, the temple uh, in Jerusalem, you would have two, roughly two parts to it. You have the holy place and then the holy of holies. And there would be a curtain separating the two. And only one day out of the year, the high priest would, uh, the day of the atonement, he would sacrifice a lamb and and a scapegoat, I think. And then he'd go in and make atonement for sins. And the idea is, is that the understanding was is that God, his presence and his holiness was in the Holy of Holies. And you can't just go in there. In fact, you can't even go into the holy place. Only the priest could go in there. So you and I, you know, we're not uh, going there. And in fact, that, that even just to go in there, the holies of holies, with, when it wasn't on this day, you would die. That's how holy God was. When you worship him, you, you approach him on his terms, not our own. And this curtain that divides it off. What do we see here right after the death of Jesus? It's torn. It's ripped in two. What does that mean? It means now by the sacrifice of Jesus, there is no more veil, voile, between God and humanity. By the sacrifice of Christ, we have access into the presence of God. Now it's interesting, when we think about one of the the people who are passing by Jesus and they were insulting him, saying he said he would destroy the temple and build it in three days. And we can find that in John chapter 2. It's the, it's the story where when Jesus, he comes up to the temple, and instead of finding a house of prayer, he finds a market. He finds people selling animals for sacrifice, people exchanging their money. So he gets a cord and he chases them all away. And then the, the, the chief priests come up to him and they say, on whose authority are you doing this? And Jesus, in this kind of a roundabout way, he never really answers them directly, but he says this, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And of course, they don't understand. They look at the big glorious temple, the building, and they say something along the lines, if I don't really remember, but it's taken us 40-some years to build it, and you're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days? Who do you think you are? And, but then we have... John's, uh, John, who wrote his gospel, he puts in a little note, but Jesus wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his own body as being the temple. And on the third day, he would rise from the dead. And so it's interesting. When people were insulting Jesus, you know, now that you're on that cross, how are you going to uh, complete your, your engineering program of build, rebuilding this new temple? But isn't Jesus doing it right there? Hasn't he already begun the construction? He's tearing it down. But he's going to rise again three days later and create a new and living way to God. It's important that we see this. Think about a temple. It's the place where you go to have communion with God and to know his presence. And what do you have there? You have a priest. And he offers a sacrifice for the sins of the people, so that even the, the people can continue to have a restored fellowship and communion with God. And we see that Jesus now, he's fulfilling all these things on the cross. He's the priest. 
He's offering up a sacrifice. What's the sacrifice? It's himself. He's the priest, the perfect priest, who's offering up the perfect sacrifice in order to give us a perfect, a more personal and a more intimate relationship with the Father. He is the new temple. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the, the, the center of worship for God, the Father. And now we can see that through Christ, he's creating a new people, a new community that don't worship God through material buildings, through priests, through animal sacrifices. It's all found in his person. And why is this such good news? I was a, I mean, you know, throughout my whole Christian life, I want to be growing, I want to be learning more about this. But it really struck me last summer, I was at a conference, and I was surrounded by guys who were passionate for the gospel, and each talk was so encouraging. And you know, you're just kind of on a spiritual high. And I remember uh, at night lying there in my bed and praying and thinking, man, my prayers are just rubbish. You know, just and I started comparing myself to the guys that were around me, and I just felt so small and unspiritual. Um, it's, it's great to be encouraged by them, but I felt, you know, these guys are way ahead. But then I had this thought just come into me, and it just filled me with joy, thinking, well, that's fine, because even my pathetic prayer is done in Christ. And that's what God the Father accepts. He accepts our pathetic prayers in Christ before even the most beautiful and eloquent prayers that are not done in Christ. The same goes with our, with our life, with our singing, when we, in our evangelism. We can do many great things. And in fact, uh, even non-Christians can live better and more moral lives than we can. But if they're not done in Christ, they count for nothing. We can even live pathetic lives as Christians, but if they're done in Christ, the Father accepts them. The Father only accepts worship that is centered on Christ. And that is good news because in the end, that's what we are. We're sinners saved by grace that go to the Father in the name of Jesus. So we're beginning to see what Mark wants us to see. Yes, that the cross is, off, is awful. It's, it's disgrace. But what Jesus is doing with the cross is something glorious. This leads us to our last and final point that the death of Christ achieves. The cross is the climax of his glory. The cross is the climax of his glory. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion, that means a Roman officer, who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man is the son of God. Throughout Mark's gospel, there's lots of key terms. When people confess who Jesus is, they say he's the Christ, perhaps the king of the Jews. Well, even when God speaks about his son, he says, this is my beloved son. But where do we see this title, the son of God? If you look at the, uh, we, most of you don't have your Bibles, but 
At the first verse in Mark's gospel, it starts like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then what's interesting, so we have this title, Son of God, and then nobody confesses this title throughout the entire gospel. The only type of confession that we have are by demons. They say, he is the Son of God, but Jesus doesn't accept their confession and tells them to be quiet. But up until now, no one has confessed Jesus as the Son of God except this Roman. What does this show us? That the climax of his glory is revealed in his death. What makes the the Roman cry out, this is the Son of God? Look at this verse again. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died. Saw how he died. What did the chief priests, what did the people passing by want to see? They wanted to see a Messiah who was strong, full of strength and power. They said, if you come down, we, we will see and we will believe. And yet none of this is what the Roman soldier saw. What did he see? He saw humiliation. He saw weakness. He saw a shame-filled cross. And yet a person on there, and more than a person. He's seen many deaths throughout his life as a career, as a Roman soldier. But this death is different. And he's lived in a culture where his empire has crushed other nations. And you would think, what would impress him the most? Wouldn't it be power? Wouldn't it be domination? It wasn't those things. It was weakness and humiliation of a Messiah. And it leads him to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the climax of his revelation of who Jesus is and his glory. And we see the power of the cross as well. You know, there's some people who think, you know, they'll never become a Christian, they'll never convert. But look at the power of the cross here. Transforms even the most hardened soldier. Changes his life. Son of God. We saw how Psalm 22 spoke so clearly of the crucifixion. How does it end? Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Who's the first person to confess in Mark's gospel? Jesus, the son of God, a Roman. Someone from the nations. And we start to see now the power of the cross, the message of the cross, going and transforming the world. And it starts right there with that Roman soldier. Verse 30 and 31 of Psalm 22. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Christ has done it. Isn't that beautiful how the cross fulfilled all these scriptures, the prophecies, how the temple, the sacrifice, the priest, all these things were pointing to Christ. 
And then the blessing that flows from it now, the nations will hear about God's salvation in Christ and will believe and see the glory of Christ, the most glorious person, transforming the most disgraceful cross and make it an instrument no longer of death, but of life and eternal glory. So just to end, the greatest proof of who Jesus is, the greatest proof that he is the Son of God, is not that he came down from the cross, it's that he stayed on the cross, it's that he died on the cross. It shows us what God is like. We have a God who is not just pure power, he is not just some divine tyrant who is looking to enslave people. We have a God who would rather come and, be, and serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We have a God who would rather completely empty himself and suffer humiliation so that we would never know what that would mean to experience God's judgment and God's wrath so that we could forever know his love, his communion, his fellowship. This is where faith is born. And this is where faith must always rest. If we don't connect Christ to the cross, something's missing. But this is where faith is born. When it sees Christ, my substitute, died for my sins in order to bring me to God. This is where faith transforms anyone. And that's when it gives us a new way of life. When we see our Lord and our Messiah... And it's not just about us and searching for my needs. It's about my rights. It's about proving that I'm the, I'm the innocent one. I'm the just one. It's not about my comfort, my safety, my protection. Those are not the most important things in life. Actually, it's knowing Christ, believing Christ, loving Christ, living for Christ, and following Christ. Those are the, Living for Christ is the most important. That's what gives us... Life meaning, sense, and destiny, knowing that that's what's eternal. It's Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You and praise You. Thank You that You reveal Yourself so clearly and so perfectly in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You, Lord, that His death is not just like any other death, his death on the cross is not like any other death on the cross. Thank you, Lord, you, you have not left us in the darkness about this, but you've interpreted it for us so that we can understand, that we can know that the reason why the Son of God came to die was to bring us to you. Thank you that we see your character so clearly and that you're willing to send your Son not to be indifferent to our sufferings, but to enter into our sufferings. Thank you that even when we go through the darkest moments and we feel like we don't sense you at all, thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ knows what that feels like so that you can help us in any moment and in, in any darkness. Help us, Lord, to put Christ first, even above our own, at times, our own comfort, our own needs, our own security, knowing that if we try to save our life, we will lose it. But if we lose our life for Christ's sake, we will save it. 
Help us to live this out this week and every week to keep the glory of Christ before our eyes so we can become more like him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. sing our next song which is Before the Throne of God Above I Have a Strong, a Perfect Plea.